Hello and welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and as you know, or at least you should know, I am the host of this podcast. Before I go any further, you do need to go and get my free e-course crossing over to commercial property if you're a residential property investor who is looking to get into commercial property. All you need to do is go to ncrealestate.co.uk forward slash crossing over to commercial. It is completely free and it will take 60 minutes of your time, but it is 60 minutes well spent. So make sure you go and get access to that free e-course. And not to blow my own trumpet, but it definitely is the best freebie I have ever produced. Today, we are going back to through the throwbacks. And again, this is one of my favourite podcasts I've ever recorded because it's so different to the content that I would usually put out. I invited one of my favourite authors onto the podcast. His name is Alex Sujong Kim Pang. And he wrote a great book called Rest. And it really, really, really resonated with me. It's all about the four day work week and how rest can really just make a difference to your life, your productivity. And as property investors, we are on the go a lot. So this really is something that is worthwhile listening to. And I want to put it back here, right at the top of the podcast feed so that you get the most out of it. And if you listen to it way back when it came out in 2019, listen to it again, it's really worthwhile. So without further ado, let's cross over into why you need to rest. Welcome to the NC Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for property investors to come and build a profitable property portfolio that completely aligns with their goals. I am so excited today because I have one of my favorite authors because the book that I read this year has completely revolutionized my morning, which has revolutionized my day. Um, And I cannot wait to introduce you and have this conversation. So for those of you who've seen all the posts, the blog posts that I put out as well about the book Rest, why you get more done when you work less, I have got Alex Pang, who's authored this book, come to speak to me today. Hi, Alex, how are you doing? I'm just fine, Natasha. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to have (laughs) you here. So you've just finished a a book. Is this the one shorter, How Companies Are Redesigning the Workday and Reinventing the Future? Exactly. Um, So the new book is is essentially about companies that are putting rest into practice by um, moving to four-day work weeks or six-hour days. And they're what's... What I love about them is that they are, you know, first of all, incredibly varied, right? Mm-hmm. I've got Michelin-starred restaurants. I have software startups, advertising agencies, um, or call centers, um, manufacturers. They're all over the world. Some, mm-hmm. of the, some of the biggest are in Korea and Japan, as well as Scandinavia or the UK or the US. And, you know, they're, they are, they are shortening, they're shortening their working hours. Um, right now without sacrificing people's salaries or cutting productivity or alienating clients. So I think it's, um, you know, it, it's, they illustrate for us how it's possible to do this 
thing that seems impossible or science fictiony right now and mm -hmm. incredibly low cost with great benefit. So, um, so it was a you know that made it a fun book to write. Amazing. And what are the key benefits that you've seen from six hour days, four days a week? Oh wow, that's right. a dream. So you know, um, for organizations, most of them get into it out of a need to. You know, it's about um, recruitment and retention for one thing, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so this is this is why you know restaurants do it. For example, they have tremendous issues with um, sort of with uh, sort of with retention, um, and then uh, another one has to do obviously with work life balance, um, with uh, making it with att uh, attracting more experienced workers mm -hmm. when you're you know, when you're a startup, let's say, um, and I think with uh, figuring out how to make companies or institutions more sustainable, right? Or if you want to build a company that you that doesn't just get, you know, sold in three years, mm -hmm. um, but rather is like a place that you can imagine working for the next 30, yeah. um, you have to think about you know, or the the work that you do as a marathon rather than a sprint, and you know, I think especially when you're in, let's say, software, um, you know, or one of these other these other industries where long hours are the norm, where burnout is, you know, virtually a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. um, figuring out how to design your organization and design your workday so that you can do this work that you really love for a long time rather than doing it to the point of self-destruction is a real challenge. Yeah. And it's one that, you know, I think that, you know, as I talked about in REST, there are various things that we can do as individuals to help reach the, uh, or of, uh, to reach that state. But it's also really important to recognize that our ability to do that is shaped and constrained by the places where we work, by occupational and professional cultures, but also that those places and those cultures can be re-engineered um, to support that kind of better rested, more sustainable kind of work. So mm -hmm. that's what the next book's about. Fantastic. Oh, I'm so excited to read it. I cannot wait for that to come out. Um, you know, I would love to have, you know, I would love to have a or of an example of you know, a real estate management company or such to, or to, to be able to throw in here. So, you know, if you, if you know of one who wants to give it a try, <laughs> I would be, I'd be, I would love to talk to them. Okay. I think I know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk a bit about rest? Because this is the, this is the book that, um, I've just finished. And as I said, it, I've, I've made changes because of that. And it's just been great. I want to start mm -hmm. by asking what you what got you excited about studying rest and doing the research for rest. Why did you Why did you begin? Well, you know the works. I, I first started getting interested in the subject a few years ago when I was on a sabbatical at uh, Microsoft Research in Cambridge, and I had been you know for the last, for the previous ten years working in Silicon Valley as a technology forecaster and a consultant, mm -hmm. which is really really interesting work. But it means always that you are at the you know at the beck and call of clients. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of jumping from one project to another. And I think, like a lot of people, I was in that position of feeling 
increasingly stressed about a job that under other circumstances I would really love, right? Yeah. It's work that, that has an awful lot of appeal about it, but was, you know, leading me to a point where I was going to burn out. So fortunately, I had this chance to sort of step back. I got this, uh, this fellowship at Microsoft Research, and about a month into it, um, I was out one evening with my wife. We were, you know, and we were sort of, you know, we both had several books with us at this cafe. And I realized that, you know, I was getting enormous amounts of stuff done. I was having really great conversations. I was writing a lot. And, but at the same time, I didn't feel like the, pre like the constant time pressure that I did that is a part of normal life in a place like Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And it started me thinking that, you know, we think of overwork, of long hours, of that kind of time pressure, that stress, the risk of burnout, all as essentially prices that we have to pay in order to do really good work. Yeah. And this experience made me think, maybe that's actually backwards. Mm -hmm. um, maybe in order to do really great work, we have to um, figure out how we can build in more rest into our lives. And that started me looking at you know, the lives of Nobel Prize winners and other super accomplished people for whom we have really good information about their day-to-day -day working lives. Mm -hmm. um, also into research on the neuroscience of creativity, the psychology of creativity that in recent years has, first off, helped us better understand the role that downtime plays in the creative process, and second, helped us look into the brain in those apparently idle moments when all of a sudden, you know, you're, you are in the shower, you're, do, you know, you're, you're cleaning house, and all of a sudden you have this, you know, this idea, um, you know, a, a, an aha moment, a solution to a problem maybe that you were thinking about or a, maybe a new approach that you can sort of that you can try, mm -hmm. and all of that stuff put together made me realize you know, sort of that there actually is a really interesting story to be told here about the hidden role that rest plays in the lives of really creative people, mm -hmm. and that can be explained using this research. So you know, and it also you know for me offered a way to. Um, a way to do good work, but also to balance that with rest in a way that seemed to me far better than the way I'd lived before. So that's the story. Okay, so interesting. And so did you start changing your routine first or did you do the research and then change your routine? What does your daily routine look like now because of it? Right, um, it is, so the two of them kind of co-evolved. Um, mm -hmm. I do pretty much everything that I talk about in the book. So, you know, I think, you know, I think naps are a good example, right? You know, yeah. I think I started taking them um, before I got into the literature on naps, but the, the science of naps and the relationship between like naps and restoration and creativity certainly confirmed to me that this was something really, really worth doing. Do you, so and, you, do you nap at the yeah, moment? Okay. You have that in your daily schedule? It's pretty, it's not, it's not completely a daily thing. It's pretty close to it. Um, but I certainly am willing to do it whenever 
I feel tired. You know, when I get to that stage yeah. where previously I would have like, you know, had some more coffee. Um, you know, I'm the sort of person who with practices learned to drop off for about 20 minutes and you know, a relatively short nap I find is restorative in a way that more caffeine is not necessarily. So, you know, okay. naps are one thing that I do. Um, you know, I think like you, I have found that um, developing a good morning routine turns out to be a very powerful way of setting up the rest of the day and of getting a, and of, of getting a lot done and having a sense of accomplishment um, much earlier in the day, which is, you know, which really kind of brightens up your, you know, or brightens up everything. Um, and so, you know, I have become more serious about exercise. Um, I haven't had another sabbatical yet, which is one of the other things I talk about in the book. But, you know, or I'm ever hopeful that someone will come through with, you know, sort of with another offer. So, you know, to the extent that I can do the things that I talk about in the book, I absolutely do them. And I think that the, you know, the proof of their value is that it took me, what, like 10 years or so um, to write my first book. And in the time since I've been doing all this stuff, you know, the stuff that I talk about in rest, I have written now three books in about six years. So, you know, I am, you know, sort of, I am working better. I think I'm having better ideas. Um, And I certainly have a far better work life balance than I ever did before. And have you managed to set up your business in that time as well? Or have you always worked for yourself as a consultant? No, I've, um, I've, it's, it's been a mix of, sort of, 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 uh, of working either, um, for other people or, you know, or of, uh, or of running, running the restful company. So, um, you know, like a lot of, I think like a lot of new ventures, it's one that's, you know, that sort of started out as more of a kind of, you know, sort of side gig or stage name, um, and has become more of a thing over time. But, um, I, however, you know, the, however, all the books are ones that I've done while doing something else as well. And indeed, one of the reasons that, you know, for, for plenty of us, morning routines are really important is that you got to go off to your day job. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, the super early morning is the time when you can work on your own stuff. And so that's another reason why it really matters. Yeah. I mean, definitely since reading your book, and I think I've raved about this as well, I realized how my routine, my daily routine just wasn't there. And if I moved everything to before 9am, then that would give me the whole day to go out and do whatever I needed to do. So I was exercising at lunchtime, but there was, it was just this thing in the middle of the day, which would kind of catch me out because then it would take me ages to get back into the working routine. So I moved that to 6.30. And then after that, I was like, right, in your gym clothes, just go out and take the dog for a walk. And that first three hours where I've been to the gym, I've then actually sat and had breakfast in between and I read my emails and I just absorb what's going on. I don't reply to anything at that time in the morning. I'm just like, right, what do I need to think about that's going to happen for the rest of the day? Go out with the dog for three or four miles because otherwise she's 
she loves it but otherwise she'll just run around like a crazy dog all day which doesn't help me (laughs) (laughs) and then and then I get started with my day once I'm back and and that has just changed how I feel because I know those first and it it takes me three hours to get that done for so that's from around waking up around six and then being at my desk by just after nine that's three hours which I completely appreciate that a lot of people listening to this may think Natasha I just don't have that but it changes how I feel about the day can you give any practical practical tips to someone who has to get up and go and do that whole day at work what could they do in their morning routine to to get a bit of that or get all of that in fact I don't think you need it to be three hours I just take my time Mm -hmm. no okay so you know first off I think that um it is important to recognize that we have a little more control over our time than we like to think. You know, sort of, I've been doing talks about rest all over the world. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that no matter where you are these days, if you ask someone how they're doing, the reply is, I'm so busy. Yeah. Right? And this is true. And I got this, I got this, I was in Azerbaijan last month. And, you know, you hear this there, you hear it in um, Amsterdam, Tokyo, New York, all over the place. And so, but I think that first off, you know, recognizing that, you know, while we have, while we are very accustomed to this mode of busyness as a kind of way of life, I think that learning to, you know, learning to recognize that there, we have a capacity to take back control of at least parts of our day, you know, and to take it back from things like social media from, or, you know, from self-generated distractions, Mm -hmm. that this is something that is, you know, always within our grasp. Um, The second thing I would say is that even relatively small practices can make a big difference over time. So, you know, I think that, that there, were, there are lots of people for whom, you know, contemplative practices, whether it is, you know, or of meditation, whether it's centering prayer, other things, um, you know, will report that these things don't necessarily take up a lot of your time, but they can set a tone for the rest of the morning and the rest of the day mm-hmm. that, has, that delivers outsized value. Um, you know, I think, and I mean, in a way that, you know, one of the things that I've discovered about rest is that it's that for, for really creative people, rest is pursued somewhat in the way that rest periods during high intensity exercise are pursued, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, or of, you know, you, you, you go all out and then you rest and then you go all out, go all out again. And the rest periods actually are really, really important in those routines. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, for, for figures like scientists and composers and mathematicians, that ability to really dive into a problem, to work very intensively on it, is an incredibly valuable and often delightful and incredibly pleasurable thing. But that's not something that you can sustain for long periods. And the people who get really good at it recognize when they're no longer at their peak effectiveness. And at that point, they stop and they go do something else. And they recognize that, you know, I'm going to be better off 
if I take a break now, I go do something else rather than if I just kind of grind metal for the next the next several hours and not actually get anything done. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, that our jobs, our careers, professions, professional norms, all of these put really significant constraints on how much we're how how much and how seriously we're able to take rest and to bring it into our lives. It's not saying that it makes it completely impossible, but rather, you know, I think we don't want to, you know, it is incorrect to see this simply as a matter of, you know, of needing like better personal management or, you know, to become better at self-care. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, especially for, let's say parents or for working women, you know, the yeah. assumption, you know, they live in a world in which <clears throat> you're expected to parent as if you don't work and pursue your career as if you don't have children yeah. to do both of those at exactly the same time. And then to take the blame if you fail to live up to these impossibly high ideals in both domains. That's not something that can be improved can be improved with tips and tricks, right? Yeah. That requires a fundamental, re <laughs> you know, sort of a rethinking of the way that careers operate yes. and, the, and sort of professional norms. There are structural solutions to those problems that are sort of that actually have been pioneered in the companies that I've been looking at for my latest book that can be applied more broadly. So, you know, I think that we need to take, you know, it is. It is always valuable for us to take our own time more seriously. Yeah. To recognize that rest in the context of periods of intensive focused activity can be both very restorative and can help us work better. But also to recognize that there are big structural issues that make it really hard for people, I think especially women, mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of to do to do work at the level that they want to do um, while having the kinds of lives that we all want to have. Yes, definitely. And it's something that is very much discussed. I know in the property industry, we're always having these conversations where I meet up with um, other surveyors uh, or we're speaking on the phone. And that's the one thing that is a massive problem is that if we if we leave work early or there's a need to go and collect your children or, or be involved in that, there's, there's very much that stigma around, oh, they don't care enough. But right. what have you experienced that can be done to change that? So I think that the, you know, part of what you're describing is something that sociologists call the flexibility stigma. And for, or for a while, people have been, you know, have been interested in why it is that, um, like professional organizations will have flexible work programs. We'll have like part-time programs for new parents and people don't use them, right? Mm -hmm. Something like 90% of law firms offer flexible work and only 4% of people who are eligible actually take them. Wow. And this is, you know, this is big. This is a big frustration for everyone because it, you know, it means you have, you lose people who could become great lawyers or, 
you know, accountants or, mm-hmm. or other professionals. You know, it's costly for organizations because once that talent walks out the door, you've got to hire new people and you've got to retrain them. Mm-hmm. Um, and companies today face, I was, uh, uh, 20 years ago, companies hired 10% of their workers from the outside. These days, it's more than 60%. And so you've got these, the, 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 both the number of gaps that companies have to fill and the seniority at which they have to be filled is greater than ever. Um, but the problem is, and so while the flexible schedules look, you know, they are well-intentioned, but the problem is that there is still this, uh, there is still the kind of cultural sensibility that, um, you know, people who are working flexibly are, you know, sort of they're taking advantage of the system or they are creating more work for other people um, or they are, you know, less, they are less reliable because they're not, a, because they are not um, available 24 seven, just in case, you know, mm. just in case someone has a question about something, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be an emergency no. any longer. It's just got to be, you know, I feel like, you know, what were those quarterly numbers from two years ago? And, you know, I just kind of, I just kind of want to know. And, you know, in an era when we can get like, you know, DoorDash or of all the time, you know, shouldn't we be able to get information all the time? Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, someone, you know, someone should be able to, to deliver this to us. And I think that, you know, and then, you know, on the other hand, people who work flexibly um, report feeling like, they have to work, they actually have to work harder than they are, than they would in the office in order to deal with all that kind of coordination stuff that just happens normally when you're around other people. Um, but also to make sure that their bosses know that they're not slacking off. And so it feels like a kind of lose-lose proposition for everyone. And I think that while there are some organizations that have been better than others at making clear, at stating that flexible work really genuinely is an option and that you can have a good career doing this. And they've been very mindful about trying to promote people who have been working part-time or keeping, you know, making sure that they continue to get opportunities to work on interesting projects that this is actually, that for a lot of places, this is a really hard thing. One of the things that I think places that go to four-day work weeks or six-hour days do right is that they give some of the benefits of flexible work to everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for parents, being able to leave at two o'clock or three o'clock is a, you know, to, in time to pick up kids every day is an absolute game changer, right? I had someone say that, you know, that, um, they had, you know, they now got to spend time with their kids before they got cranky at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I assume they meant the kids rather than themselves. <laughs> so now that, you know, actually I, I gotta, I gotta go back and look, look at the, look at the transcript. On that. <laughs> but, um, you know, but to be able to spend time with the children before the kids have the meltdown is, that's it. you know, that sounds like a small thing, but if you're a parent, you know instantly that's actually a big thing. Yeah, and companies that that make that uh, that reduce reduce working time, reduce it for 
everybody. And so there is no stigma about leaving the office early when everyone is leaving the office early. And so I think that that's, you know, that's, uh, uh, and that, you know, places that, places that have done this demonstrate that, you know, with the right set of rules and with the right attitude, it's entirely possible to do, you know, uh, to do five days worth of work in four days, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or 40 hours worth of work in 30 and, or to, and to do it in ways that, help people be happier at work and to have more lives outside of work. So, I mean, I think that the, that there are, you know, this is not to say that we should give up on like flexible or flexible options, but I think that, uh, that it is worth recognizing that, that, you know, that the costs, I think the costs of flexibility may be harder for some organizations to deal with than um, the costs of moving just moving everyone to shorter hours and that you may have happier outcomes doing the second rather than the first. Yeah. I think I definitely touched on some really key points. When I moved to America, I, uh, with the university that I work at, I'm on a part-time contract, which, uh, it's 21 hours. And I had to, when I was in the UK, I had to be going into the university, uh, two, at least two days a week. And I needed to be sat there two days a week. And then when we moved to America and I said to them, look, I'm going to America, I'd still love to work with you. And they put me on that flexible contract. I remember the first couple of weeks that I was doing that flexible contract and I'm now on a different time zone. So I'm not there when they're having their morning meetings or what have you. It was so tough for me to get used to. And the fact that I was still working and doing as much as I did when I was in the office, but I couldn't always make the meetings to dial in or sometimes the meetings just there was no point in fact actually what they realized was some of the meetings there was no point me being there because they didn't need me anyway but because I'd been in the office they had to invite me but it was that (laughs) of course (laughs) anybody from the university that's listening thank you for not including me in all of the meetings I really appreciate that it saves my time um but um that it was the transition period that for me was really tough because I always want to show that I'm working hard that I'm doing what I said I say I'm doing and now Mm -hmm. now that I've got that back into a routine I feel completely good about it I can pick it up and I can go out and have a a walk in fact I've got walks scheduled into my into my calendar with the university like the flexibility now is fantastic and they just dropped everybody down so the full-time contract is now 35 hours a week rather than 42 which uh, is is brilliant um but it's also that transition and it's getting from you go completely flexible and you think oh my gosh no one's here I can't talk to anybody or you can talk to people they might not think you're doing anything um and then getting that routine in for yourself and have you have you experienced that have you experienced people getting into their own routines and why do you think that would be so beneficial you know uh that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, we think of routines as like, or of the enemy of creativity and, or, you know, the enemy of the enemy of good ideas. And yeah. I think they, they actually get a bad rap. What, what well-designed routines do is lay a, is essentially kind of lay the table for innovation yeah. or, or of, for insight and for creative thinking. Um, Stephen King has a great line about this in his book about writing. And he says that, you know, or of the idea that 
you get inspired, right? The muse throws the lightning bolt at you and you have this great idea. And then if you, you know, you work in this creative frenzy um, is backwards. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that's not, that's not the way that Stephen King says he's written, what, you know, 50 books now or however many, just that astounding number. But rather, sort of, you start the work and it's while you're working that you get inspired. Yeah. That, you know, sort of dealing with these tech, you know, with the technical issues of craft, sort of going back to this problem of, okay, how do you end this chapter? It's while you're struggling with that, that sort of the light bulb comes on. And mm -hmm. that, you know, that the, basically the muse needs to know where to find you in order to hit you with that jolt. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that sort of, this is, this is something that a lot of, you know, that a lot of creative people discover and that becomes a kind of centerpiece of how they work. Um, the artist Chuck Close said that, you know, or the muse exists, but it has to find you working. And so, I mean, the idea, you know, this basic idea that um, you start, you know, you get inspired by working, mm -hmm. you don't work after you are inspired is I think a central discovery for order for lots of these uh, for lots of these folks. Now, why is this? I mean, now I think that there is some there is some indirect evidence that this is simply kind of how the or of um, or of how the brain approaches problem solving, and that we have in a sense evolved to find creative solutions to very practical problems. Right? You know, sort of where is today's food? Um, you know, what can we use to build, you know, to build shelters and that these are, and that these are, and that, you know, for a long time, solutions to pro or of solutions to problems were things that were incredibly specific and involved, involved problems that were right in front of us, mm -hmm. right? This was not about sort of how you sort of you know, it wasn't about like abstract creative products. And so I think that the, you know, you, that there may be a kind of evolutionary argument for this, that, you know, for a long time, human beings mainly were concerned with solving issues right in front of them to allow them to survive for another day or for, you know, through the next season. Mm -hmm. And so, or of the, you know, and so work Work being the trigger for creativity under those circumstances makes total sense. Um, and then, but you know, I think that the other the other important thing to the, uh, that um, people like you know writers and composers tell us about this issue is that there's an awful lot of what we think of creative a lot of stuff in creative work that actually is pretty routine once you get good at it. So, you know, Tchaikovsky has this line about going for long walks in the forest mm -hmm. um, in the sort of after he's been working in the morning. And he says, you know, sometimes you come up with these great bridges between one movement and another or, you know, between you know, ways, to, ways to connect these ideas. And sometimes you don't and you just kind of write something that, you know, or of, that just kind of makes it work. And, you know, sort of, and you just live with that and you move on to the next thing. But, the, 
you know, I think that the that the point is that there is there is in every big project, whether it's a book or a symphony or something else, yeah. there is plenty of work that is like more ordinary problem solving. And you can get you can make a lot of progress on these big projects work if you work diligently on that stuff and sort of trust that the create that you know that the magic of the creative insight will hit at some point in the course of doing that work um it's and it's certainly a much more reliable way of getting stuff done than you know, waiting for the muse to strike and then starting to work because you know that is uh, you know uh, that can be um a scheduling disaster so so every project then you schedule in a little bit of time just so that you know you're going to do it and just give it a go just try and work on it bridge the gaps between where you are now to moving forward and then from that you get inspired absolutely Mm -hmm. no you know and i think that the that i this is this is okay you know i think there is by graphical evidence that people also get better at working this way over time mm-hmm. that you know lots of lots of people lots of people who sing the praises of this kind of consistency um have earlier in their lives periods where they like work in these self-destructive you know blazes of glory or at least have really terrible time management skills um, <laughs> as I did, you know, in college and graduate school, right? I was one of these people who never started work before, like, you know, until after David Letterman was over, partly because I was lousy at, you know, actually managing my time, yeah. but also because, you know, I thought that's how creative people work, right? You know, it's like yeah. all stuff that happens in the middle of the night. And I think that there were, and there were plenty, there are plenty of really famous people who who become become the best versions of themselves when they learn to tame that and to take what looks like a sort of more kind of stable, almost sort of, you know, boring bourgeois approach to their work, but which allows them actually to do their best work. And so, you know, they kind of learn this, they kind of learn this the hard way uh, that, you know, that, that actually, you know, while it is kind of, dramatic and you know and in its way kind of fun um to you know to do this work to do this work at the last moment in this kind of blaze of pressure that really the odds of actually finishing it and of doing a good job are much better if you work in this more sustained way and that you can and that you know over time um it's it seems like people who start to practice this actually get better at it i mean i think that you know i haven't i i personally have not quantified this or tried to mark the number of times that this happens uh, happens you know in a month of writing but i do think that i have more of those experiences of you know switching on the light at five in the morning and starting to write and having some really really good idea in that kind of semi-conscious phase where I'm operating a little bit on automatic as I write. Mm-hmm. And I have some, you know, I have some insight that I seriously doubt I would have any other time of day. But I think that I have more of those things now than I did 
six years ago when I started working in this manner. And from what I can tell, other people report similar things that this is, you know, that this is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a practice that improves over time. It's not like a one-time thing where you switch your calendar and, you know, sort of the ideas just switch, you know, and the ideas just like switch on. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, sort of, um, it's not like starting an oil well, right? You know, yeah. you drill once and then you get the oil forever. This is more like, you know, this is more like farming or fishing. Um, you know, it's about, you know, sort of, it's about developing a relationship with this time that allows you to work better for a long time. It's really interesting. So would you, so you have to develop that skill and then, I've and I want to tie this in with a lot with a question that I've been asked from some of my colleagues who are looking at writing books or doing their PhDs and would you so as well as that you tie how do you fit how would you fit in that extra project you tie that in with uh, maybe starting and doing it for an hour and your creativity comes rather than having to know everything about the topic before you start you kind of just start going at an angle Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that the or uh, that you are that it is. Let me think about this for a second. I mean, um, for me, the like that period in the early in the early morning mm-hmm. when I'm working well is. I've got to have something that I'm working on um, in order to in order for that uh, for that period to be super useful. Yeah. Um, like when I'm th- you know just thinking about thinking about the four day week book, um, it was it, you know I don't get I don't get up super early to think about new ideas. I mean to you know or of mm-hmm. when they are when they're in the very early stages and I'm trying to figure out like what's the angle here is there a story here or not um is there enough material that kind of calculation is not stuff that happens between 6 a.m and 10 a.m okay um the actual like writing of the book is what happens then and you know and it's or if it's a and so for me that really early morning is a period in which I can be inspired about something that I'm sort of that I'm already certain is worth working on um it's already something whose contours i am i have mapped out and it's really about working through the million and one details Mm -hmm. so you know i think that sort of for let's say you know let's say for or of um for a graduate student for or you know someone who is let's say you know pursuing a degree while working um i think that at a practical level, it may be that, you know, the more, or if the, I think the morning is never a bad time to get stuff done. It's just a question of how, of how you design your routine and what it is that you, you know, what it is that you choose to work on. Um, and certainly, I mean, for me, you know, like the period between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. when I'm writing is a period that is, that's like, okay, I'm not a morning person. Um, I have never been a morning person. Getting up at five is a real sacrifice for me. 
Wow. Yeah, I'm but, a morning person. But the reason that I do it, the reason that those hours are super valuable is that I'm not quite awake. And so it's almost like the door to the creative subconscious is still a little bit ajar because I'm not yet fully conscious. Mm. And the routine that I have developed for writing in that period is one that is designed to minimize the number of distractions that I have, the number of decisions that I have to make in that period. It essentially allows me to stay in that state for as long as I can, but just sitting in front of the keyboard rather than in bed. And, mm. you know, I think that there is, you know, there is something about that time of day that actually genuinely is special. There's a reason that, you know, Buddhist monks or, you know, sort of, uh, Benedict, you know, or in Benedictine monasteries, you're getting up at, Four or five a.m. You know, in order to, you know, in order to chant an hour of prayers. Yeah, there is something about that time that is unusual for most people, and so, you know, for me, that period is designed in order to allow that part of my creative mind, sort of an opportunity to sort of express itself and to get out some words that my conscious self would have real trouble formulating. After that, I become closer to, you know, sort of the more normal, rational thinking person. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, yeah, I think that the, you know, if I, if I were, if I were still in school, um, you know, those first couple hours of writing would still be really valuable. But then after that, it might be that, dealing with, you know, coursework and, and more normal kinds of things would be what I would shift into. And indeed, so, you know, and in fact, when I'm writing, it's often like the second half of the morning when I'm doing like the more, when I'm doing stuff that doesn't require quite as much like creative energy, but is more sort of thinking about organizational stuff or like writing up stories. Um, and is you know requires good craft and attention to detail and so on, but doesn't necessarily require the same level of like in, like intense creative fire that some other parts of of any book do. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. So, do you think that this? I mean, you said you we looking at the six hour working day and four hour working week. Do mm-hmm. you think that our the if our working lives in the future will change to take into account the day, the times of the day when we're really in the flow or the times of the day where we're feeling a little bit more that we have to go out and do an activity. Do you think that our working lives will start revolving more around that? Um, the answer is uh, the companies that are doing this absolutely pay more attention to those things. Okay. One of the things, yeah. So um, at least, you know, sort of, uh, Creative firms are already, yeah, are doing this. So um, what they will do is they'll redesign the workday so that the first, usually the first several hours of the day, the morning is reserved for people's most intensive, most challenging work. 
Um, it's also the case that generally, and what that means is number one, absolutely no meetings. You might have like a five minute stand up meeting, but that's, you know, just to like, just to do some really quick coordination. Mm -hmm. But you know, that the hour long meeting that starts at 9am and basically destroys the rest mm -hmm. of your day. Nobody does this. Absolutely. Nobody does this. So quick stand up meeting. And then the next couple hours are, you know, you, you work on whatever is most critical. Um, the office generally is quiet. Mm -hmm. You also have the right to tell people to buzz off. Uh, you don't have to answer the phones. You don't deal with email. You just, you just have permission to work on your most important stuff. Yeah. And then the day kind of eases up after that. Um, you hold meetings in the afternoon. Maybe you, you know, you've got a particular block of time for sort of clients. You've got another block of time for more internal kinds of things. But it's definitely the case that there that you know one of the things that these companies do is recognize that we are better at some kinds of tasks at one time of day and better at other kinds of tasks at another at another time of day and they match those tasks to those times mm -hmm. the way that you know the way that far too many offices work today is they assume that you're you know that every moment between nine and five is basically is like the same it's yeah. just like, you know, sort of in a factory, right? It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're making widgets at 901 or 459, you're still, you know, doing the same set of things with your hands. Yeah. But, you know, cognitive work doesn't work that way, right? Brainstorming at nine o'clock, brainstorming at four o'clock are actually pretty different kinds of activities. Um, you know, our attention levels vary throughout the day, which is why um, you know, the last thing you ever want to do is be in um, a meeting after lunch. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, you know, one of the keys for the, or for the companies that have moved to shorter days is recognizing that you can really get a big boost and you can recover some of the productivity that you might otherwise lose by shortening the work week by paying more attention to designing the day to synchronize activities with sort of sort of with circadian rhythms and cognitive abilities mm -hmm. so that's absolutely something that, they're, <laughs> that they are already doing with clear benefit and how do we the people who who work in companies who don't yet do that how could we start to approach our employers and asking asking them about this or showing them the research and saying perhaps we should we'll look at moving towards this or what could be a small step that we could just ask the question well, I think that the, you know, sort of in a sense, you just, you know, or to some degree, you just answer the question, right? I mean, that there's, there's, there's this body of research that sort of demonstrates the benefits of this. Um, there are places that already are doing it. But I think that the, you know, arguably for, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, that you might do is, I think starting with meetings is actually a really good way to um, begin trying to nudge a department or a company down this path. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes meetings, right? Everybody, sort of, and I think that, you know, sort of learning to practice the discipline of making meetings shorter, of thinking mm -hmm. about what times of day meetings can best be held or are kind of most damaging to people's productivity, that that is almost the easiest win 
that you could have in a kind of secret campaign to shorten the workday. And I mean, I think that it show and it illustrates how by thinking a little bit more about process, I think about who who actually needs to be in the meeting, um, you know, what things need to be done here, how quickly can you get through them? Those are all good things that should happen in any meeting anyway. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about when the meeting, when during the day the meeting can happen, sort of begins to clue you into the fact that you can think that there's a big gain to be had by synchronizing active uh, organizational activities to circadian rhythms. Um, that you know that that maybe is a way of um, show you know a first showing these benefits and then after you know a month or two you know pointing out that okay you know this is that turns out there are other things that we can do like this that are you know also really good which you know for example doing similar kinds of things around email and other kinds of technology use and that you know ultimately it turns out um, you know companies that are do companies that do this are able to become so much more productive that they get all their work done at the end of Thursday and they just, you know, and everybody now has a three day weekend every, you know, or every week. Mm-hmm. Um, some organ, you know, I think that, you know, so far the organizations that have done this have done it, you know, it's, it's been, it's been sparked from the top down. Um, these have generally been relatively either relatively small organizations or big companies that still have um, the original founders in charge. And so, you know, these charismatic figures who are able to take a 2000 person company and say, you know, we're going to go in this direction and the company actually will, you know, will still do it. Mm-hmm. And, but the actual work of figuring out how to implement this about, you know, how to, how to do five days worth of work in four days is something that happens from the bottom up. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that, you know, it's difficult to imagine a scenario under which um, you didn't have the boss saying, okay, we're going to try and do this and having them do it often for quite personal reasons, right? Yeah. They want to have more time with their family. They want to have, you know, the various things that all of us, it turns out, actually want to have. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, I think that they're sort of, that starting with things like better meeting practices may be a way of sort of starting to nudge, nudge open that door um, so that, you know, so that before too long, um, the boss can see, Hey, there's this door here. Maybe we ought to walk through it. Yeah. Um, and you know, sort of, essentially give, and then you know, providing the organizational managerial permission to take the more radical step <laughs> of actually formally shortening the workday. Yes, that's such good advice. Okay, so final question: If you can encourage my audience to incorporate rest into their daily lives by making one small change, what would it be? You know, I suppose the one small change would be sleep more, um, which sounds, you know, which is a, or of, which is incredibly, you know, both incredibly simple and, you know, harder than it looks. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredibly simple in that we all know how to sleep. 
Um, but you know, if you can, I think that um, of all the things that I talk about in the book, sleep arguably is the most valuable, both in yeah. both in the short term and in the long term, in terms of the effect on mood, um, the effect on our overall emotional states, on our honesty at work. People who are sleep deprived are more likely to cheat mm -hmm. if they think they're not going to get caught. Um, we work better. We're better people when we're better rested. And I think that, and I think that or if taking, taking sleep more seriously is like the gateway drug for, you know, sort of for taking other kinds of rest more seriously. So whether that is sleeping, you know, whether that's sleeping better at night, sleeping longer at night, or whether it's being able to work in, you know, or a nap during the day, um, that is, I think that's the single most valuable thing that you can do for, um, you know, sort of, uh, for yourself as a person, as a professional, as a mm -hmm. parent. Um, and sort of it's the, uh, and it will be, you know, it's less likely to be the last thing that you do along this road than the first thing. Mm -hmm. We need to take that on board. So everybody that's listening, please, if you can take on that more sleep because you'll get more out of your day and you'll be far more productive. And that's what we're all after. Because if we want to be fitting in everything that we've got to do, almost we need to be working smarter, resting longer, and you'll get to where you need to be. Would that be the key takeaway? Exactly, yes. <laughs> Amazing. Alex, Very well said. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This is always, always a pleasure to talk about this stuff, Natasha. Amazing. Thank you, everybody who came and listened to this today. I, we really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about Alex, I'm going to put his bio and all of his uh, social media and contact details below so you can go and have a look. And also, if you want to come over and want to check out my website, head on over to www.mcrealestate.co.uk. Thank you for joining us today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.